of surprised, I said this one point in my talk here, I'm going to talk about three paragraphs on the subject of natural law. And then comes the leading legal philosopher in natural law in the country, right? Yeah, they are. I'm glad I'm only going to do three paragraphs, because if I did more, he'd want to challenge me. Uh, but we'll come to that. Uh, listen, I'm grateful to be at uh, Faith and Law again. I love what you all do. It's so urgent, it's so important to uh, keep tuning ourselves in the and I tell you that because I heard a story a couple years ago about two senators having lunch in uh, Capitol Hill and Senate dining room, and uh, one was a Republican, one was a Democrat, and the Republican said it was a Democrat, the Republican said it was a Democrat, because you don't understand religion, you don't know any religious people, you don't know anything about religious doctrine. Uh, in fact, I don't even think you could recite the Lord's Prayer. I'll bet you $20 you can even recite the Lord's Prayer. The Democratic senator said, oh, I can do that. He said, let's bow our head. And he said, now I lay me down to sleep. <laughs> Whereupon the Republican reached in his pocket, pulled out twenty dollars, and said, "I didn't think you could do it." <laughs> <laughs> so it's urgent that you do what you're doing here, and educating not only uh, senators and congressmen but the staff. But my colleague George Rigo gave a public lecture a couple of years ago, right after the, our, our recent uh, presidential election, where he began with this comment, and I'd like to repeat it. He said, "As Adam said to Eve when they were on their way out of the garden of Eden." We live, my dear, in a time of great transition. <laughs> now, many respected theological and social commentators suggest that we are living now in a time of great transition in our society and our culture. In just less than 20 years, experienced observers on the political right and the political left have made some striking claims regarding the state of our culture and the state of our politics. In the late 1990s, some of you will remember during the impeachment crisis of President Clinton, the late Paul Weirich, one of the founders of the Christian right, wrote to leading religious he said this, quote, we are caught up in a cultural collapse of historic proportions, a collapse so great that it simply overwhelms our politics. He called for disengagement, and this is Paul Weirich, disengagement from politics because America was descending in what he said, something approaching barbarism. People of faith, he said, should adopt a strategy of separation because we need some sort of quarantine. Remember that, Bill? But then fast forward after he did that, five years later, soon after the election of President George Bush in the year 2000, a host of commentators and scholars wrote books and essays saying the very opposite of what Paul Weirich said. They said that America was on the verge of becoming a Christian theocracy. Books by Kevin Phillips and Michelle Goldberg and Randall Palmer all wrote bestsellers that argued that the fear of theocracy had become the defining panic of American American liberalism in the Bush era. In the pages of the New York Times, the historian Jerry Wills all but announced the end of the Enlightenment. Fearing that religious jihad arrived in America led by Southern Baptists and the Church pastors. Many of those who read these, uh, many of those who read these predictions took them so seriously that they began plotting their moves and escaped to Canada. Well, similar to those predictions, after two terms of the current administration. Uh, we're certainly not on the verge of a Christian theocracy. And now since we have the, now we have new predictions, however, from conservative Christian leaders following our recent national election of 2012. The power of the so-called moral value seems to have totally disappeared. The last presidential election was according to the prolific theologian and Southern Baptist and Oliver Moeller. He said it's a collapse of crucial moral concerns. Christian conservative activists make pronouncements that we have lost the culture. 
spoke before to CBN News, said the election was a disaster. No, in fact, he said it was a colossal disaster. And some astute observers have said that conservative moral value voters now face the very real possibility that their core concerns no longer resonate with the majority of But an insightful conservative public intellectual named Irving Crystal said this over 20 years ago. Irving Crystal, former American Enterprise Institute, said, and he said it because I, I was, he said it to me because I asked him a question on the panel. He said, there is no culture war in America today. There was one, but it's over. The other side won. That was 20 years ago. He was echoing the views of his wife, the great historian Gertrude Hemmerfarr, who said in her very important book, One Nation, Two Culture, that America is confronting six things. Number one, the collapse of ethical principles and habits. Number two, the loss of respect for authority and institutions. Number three, the breakdown of the family. Number four, the decline of civility. Number five, the vulgarization of high culture. And number six, the degradation of popular culture. Now that's a lot of stuff, but that's, that's a big collapse. Irving Crystal and Gertrude Himmelfar both would have thought that all these laments about the state of our culture today were more than a little late since these cultural trends have been in motion for a very long time. In my opinion, the crystals have been wiser and much closer to the truth in these matters, but I suspect that there's even a deeper dimension to be explored if we're going to understand these things properly as Christians. Perhaps our mistake is in assuming that we ever had the culture and then lost it. Perhaps we misunderstood the relationship of Christian faith to our culture when we do this. For me, the best guide for us in rethinking that relationship in the challenging days ahead is St. Augustine. Indeed, I will argue in what follows that we need to cultivate what I call an Augustinian sensibility. An Augustinian sensibility if we are to rightly discern what we Christians should and should not aspire to as Christians in the public arena. In the city of God, Augustine makes a very radical claim. In the city, he says, the city of man, meaning this world and this culture, is always, always at odds with the city of God. Because we presently live between these two cities, at the end of, we can never really claim that we have ever, quote, won the culture. Because we're always at the intersection of the ages. That understanding, that commitment to the future city of God should always be operating in the back of our minds as we go about being faithful citizens in this broken world and doing the best we can with the broken instruments which we have to work with. As I will argue in a moment, this does not mean that we cease to love and care for the earthly city or for the welfare of our fellow image bearers. What I'm suggesting is that the Augustinian view will give us a more realistic approach to the challenge of faith in our culture, in our various locations, in our callings. In light of all these predictions of gloom and doom, the question then becomes what are conservative Orthodox Christians to do now? Are we to circle wagons? Are we to become Amish and totally separate from the wider culture? Well, obviously the answer to those are no. The prophet Jeremiah says in chapter 29, we're to build houses and plant gardens, and we're to seek the welfare of the city while living in exile, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So we are to do what we have always been commanded to do, and that is to seek justice, to love mercy, to care for the least of these, and to love our neighbors. And one important form of neighbor love is to treat everyone, no matter what their status or their station in life, with respect and dignity. 
The late Father Richard John Newhouse put it this way, and this is one of my favorite Newhouse quotes. Father Newhouse said, it is our duty, and I quote, to strive to build a world in which the strong are just, power is tempted by mercy, in which the weak are nurtured and the marginal embraced, and to see to it that those at the entrance gates and those at the exit gates of life are protected both by law and by love. Now, let me give that to you again. You can see I've already memorized it. <laughs> so it is our duty to strive to build a world in which the strong are judged, power is tempered by mercy, in which the weak are nurtured and the marginal embraced, and to see to it that those at the entrance gates and those at the exit gates of life are protected both by law and by love. So I would like to propose four propositions for our consideration. Uh, in, in the midst of our various cultural disputes and battles uh, that we find around us, I want to propose four ways we ought to go, four things we ought to consider. Proposition number one, it is vitally important that we learn how to write and to speak with civility in our engagements with the wider public. Here I'm concerned with our tone of voice when we write and speak in public. What we say in public matters. Words matter. Being a person who speaks in a civil tone and a civil manner is a virtue. Practicing civility is a virtue. And for all those high-strung writers on blogs and editorial pages on both the right and the left, I would remind you that being civil is not a cop-out. It's not a wet word. It does not mean we trim our sales or our conviction. Civility is not, as Newhouse used to say, a wet word. The American religious historian Martin Martin put it this way. He said, people who are often civil lack conviction. And people with strong convictions lack civility. What we need are people who have convicted civility. Convicted civility. Now, it is true that some people feel that civility is a virtue prized by those who are uncertain about everything. But this does not have to be the case. One does not have to be invasive to be civil and a decent person. Civility is not just a matter of good manners and pulling our punches. It is instead a matter of showing fundamental respect and decency for the people we are engaging in the public arena. Therefore, in order to be persuasive, even with firmly held conviction, you must resist the temptation to respond in an emotive fashion, but instead in ways that are winsome and appealing. And why do I have to say this? Because I can give you illustrations of people in the Christian community who are not taken serious today because of the tone of their voice and the words they use, by the, the very, um, their very body language, the blood vessels protruding out of their neck, and nobody listens to them because they don't feel that the person making the argument actually respects their dignity. And that's why I put that in there. We have to be respectful of those we disagree with in the public arena. If we could improve in just this one area of public witness, much good would result from it. It is quite simply the will of God that we not kill each other over our differences about what the will of God is. There, now, I don't have to say this to this group, but there are groups I speak to that you have to say this to. Now, proposition number two, we need to encourage a revival of interest in our Christian communities, a revival of interest in the understanding of what St. Thomas Aquinas called the most important of the four cardinal virtues, and that is prudence. St. Thomas said, without prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance cannot be achieved. Prudence, he said, is the perfected ability to make right decisions. Prudence is defined as practical wisdom, and it is the process of moral reasoning by which our ideals are approximated to the contours of a very imperfect world. 
A prudent person asks these questions. What are the ends that we see? And then they balance and they weigh the ends. And this balancing process may require that we reduce the scope of some of our goals and our ends. A prudent person is not an idle one. And it therefore, as a result, is open to new facts, new information, and willing to adjust their views according to reality. Prudent Christians are realists who understand that our ideals must be approximated because we live in an imperfect and fallen world. So the prudent person realizes that the drawing of relative moral distinctions is a Christian social and political responsibility, and therefore they're prepared to make imperfect choices between alternatives that are clearly not always the best options. And I don't have to convince anybody on Capitol Hill that often our options are not really good. On the right or the left. But we have to choose. We should then, therefore, exhibit existential and epistemological humility before the naughty complexity that our social and political options send our way. Learning to be prudent is vitally important because the limits we face in this world are often involved with ambiguity. The messiness of sin in the world makes many matters contingent and uncertain and relative, and therefore we always, there will always be things that we hope for and things that we wish might have been. But being prudent means learning how to balance our competing goods with lesser evils while keeping a sharp sense of the ambiguities at the very heart of the ethical, political, and moral dilemmas we face. Now, proposition number three. Again, by the way, as I prepared this talk, I had no idea that Professor Arthur would be here, but here you go. Uh, for, and I, and number three is we need to recover an appreciation of the Christian natural law condition. Given that we live in a pluralistic society, understanding the natural law will help us develop a public language that will appeal across different traditions and different worldviews. Amen? Uh, on a pragmatic and practical level, much of our work requires us to learn ways to make common calls with our fellow citizens who do not share our exact theological presuppositions. Concerns for international human rights, for instance, are issues of concern for people from every imaginable religious and non-religious tradition. We will find ourselves working alongside of them and building coalitions with them and making pleas to other governments on behalf of them. Given that many of these issues cut across religious, ideological, and political commitments, we'd be wise to develop a public language and a public theology and a public grammar that will allow us to speak in a bilingual fashion, if you will. A bilingual fashion. In this way, we can begin to develop points of contact with our fellow citizens. In short, some again, the natural law tradition argues that people of all races and all cultures and all religions have access to a universal law to their natural reason. The natural law provides an ethical and moral framework that all people can grasp without the aid of divine revelation. When moral concerns are developed in the public arena, some Christians can be hampered by the lack of a moral vocabulary that is acceptable to their secular opponents. But natural law can provide a public grammar for making appeals in the public arena to people who hold diverse philosophical presuppositions. The natural law provides a bridge between the sacred world and the secular world, and therefore provides a vocabulary of connection for the believer and the non-believer alike. What I'm suggesting is simply that uttering the words, thus saith the Lord, simply will not do when you're trying to speak to a diverse public on issues of such importance. I hope this resonates. Uh, and, and let me just say, uh, there may be some of you who believe that the Christian feels the natural law almost exclusively rooted in the Roman Catholic tradition. Uh, this is actually not true. It's not the case. Protestant thinkers as diverse as John Calvin, Emil Bruder, and C.S. Lewis held a very high regard for natural law. Lewis argues in several of his books uh, that all people everywhere are aware 
He wants to think of a country where people are admired for running away in battle. Can you think of such a country? Or where a man is felt uh, proud for double-crossing all the people he comes in contact with. You might just as well imagine a country where two plus two equals five. In other words, there's a law written on the heart, and we can find ways of working for our common concerns to make appeals to all people, believers and unbelievers alike. I'll give you a quick example. Everybody should read Ryan Anderson and Robbie George's book, What is Marriage? This is a book written by Christian people where there's not simply one Bible verse in the entire book making a case for marriage. And they do it on the basis of natural law, opinion, psychology, sociology, anthropology, all of that to say we think this is best for people. And I said this to Christian audience and said, well, they didn't put any Bible verses in there because they want to convince the entire public, not just the Southern Baptist Convention. Learning the language of natural law will do much to help us master two grammars. One from when we're addressing our fellow believers, and one when we're speaking to the larger public about our common cultural concerns. Oh, we're doing good. Recovering a proper understanding of the language of natural law will do much to diffuse, by the way, unnecessary polemical language that projects an us versus them approach in our public disagreements. I find that people who most object to natural law really support Excuse my language. Well, they're just ticked off that they can't convince people of the whole world and, and they want to hammer with that. But natural law provides a bridge to say, well, there are some things we can agree on, can't we? And then you go from there. Okay, um, proposition number four, finally, I think it's important for our work, no matter what our vocations, to learn to develop what I would like to call an Augustinian sensibility as we go about our work. And here's what I mean. By affirming our responsibilities and obligations for the city of man, we need to remember that our true home is the city of God. May I say that on capital? Our true home is the city of God. The dead are not raised by politics. We should remember that. We really need to remember that. Our true home is the city of God, which is to come. So while living in this earthly city, we are to pursue temporal goals and to pursue justice. But we're always do so with a keen sense of who we are and an awareness of the fragile character of our earthly commitments and our alliances. We would do well to be reminded that in this world filled with profound suffering and terrible disorders, we can strive to maintain and create an order that approximates justice and to work firmly to prevent the very worst from happening. For instance, one of the most difficult concepts for religiously motivated Christians political and social activists to grasp are these four words, now but not yet, now but not yet. The kingdom of God has entered now, but the final kingdom has not come yet. Keeping this in mind is very important as we go about our business of being faithful Christian citizens in our various vocations and callings. Having an Augustinian sensibility will give us spiritual and emotional balance. Spiritual and emotional balance. And a perspective as we remind ourselves constantly that we now live at the intersection of the ages between the city of man and the city of God is to come. Living our lives in the intersection between the city of God and the city of man means that we will develop what sociologist John Murray Cudahy called an aesthetic, an aesthetic for the interim. An aesthetic for the interim, a way of living while in the interim time, which encourages patience, and he says, puts a band 